Our scripture reading for the day comes from Mark chapter 15, starting verse 16, page 852. Jesus is mocked, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. It's a very, very, very difficult story to absorb and to hear. Um, if it's not, I, I think maybe you've... Uh, come to the point where it's um, you've heard it so much or been so familiar with it, which is partly why we're starting 2018 um, with, with this, knowing that uh, Easter's just a couple months away, but just to help prevent that sort of just glossing over, listening to it in one ear and then out the other, that we wanted to start out our, our new year knowing who Jesus is and what he did for us and to kind of set the tone for our new year here. And, and if you're picturing the story in your head, it's just, a, it's really hard, um, especially if you have a great reverence and respect for Jesus to know that um, our God went through this. Um, and then another thing that's actually quite confusing is to say, for, Christ, for Christians to say that this is a display of God's love. And it's, to somebody who doesn't quite understand the full story of what God did from Genesis to Revelation, this is kind of difficult to absorb as well. But yet here we see God's entire plan being played out, um, and this is kind of the, the climax of that plan, and, and it was all done out of love, that he did this because he loves each one of us. And let me explain that a little bit more as we go along here. When we look at the cross, <clears throat> um, sometimes I use this as kind of an evangelism tool because uh, the cross, whether on shirts or jewelry or earrings or whatever it may be, is a, a popular item to wear. So sometimes I'll go to somebody and be like, oh, you're a Christian. And most of the time they're like, no, that's, that's most of the time. But it, it's a conversation starter and we can talk about this thing as this thing because the cross, whether it is a symbolic thing on somebody or um, something that's more figurative or uh, it is a place where people find God. So that if you want to know God, if you ever have wondered who God is, you go to the cross. Augustine preached and wrote this pretty popular um, quote here, the cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world. And this is extremely challenging to receive as a picture of love when we also realize that the love that we are receiving is undeserved. 
that the love of God is pictured through the suffering, rejection, and death of Jesus Christ. And this extension of love is not something that we can be neutral about. The, the cost is just too great to be neutral about it. The, this costly gift of God's love is either accepted or it is rejected, but there really isn't a middle ground for this. And so last week, we took a, a look at this really great question from Pilate in verse 12. It reads this, What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What will each one of us do with Jesus? And that's a really, really important question to address. And we either accept Jesus for who he is, the Christ, Savior, or we reject him. Like the, the neutrality actually has you deciding that he is not. And so oftentimes people have this, these pictures of God. And so one of these pictures is God is just a judge and he's condemning, he's judgmental, or God is just this moral authoritarian and he just cares about what I do or what I don't do. And there's this loss of a really, really huge piece of who God is, even though he, part of him is a judge and part of him is a moral authoritarian. But there's this huge piece that they're missing, that God is love. That above all things, God is love. Let's take a look at 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Mark makes a couple of things very, very clear in his gospel. One of those things is who Jesus is. And he clearly states it in Mark 1.1. The very starting sentence of it all, he marks it out and he writes this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is a really, really clear assertion of Mark that Jesus is the Son of God. That is who Jesus is. Another thing that he makes very clear in his gospel is what Jesus does. He saves sinners. So Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus saves sinners. Those are very clear things in the Gospel of Mark. Actually, they're very clear things in all four Gospels. When we just simply look at what the name Jesus means, 
Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. So if we look at another gospel writer, say Matthew, we look at Matthew 1.21, the very beginning, and it talks about Mary, and it writes, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Jehovah's salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what he does. Jesus saves. Something that we can't do ourselves, because how can we? And who decides these things? And it is God in Jesus. Now back to Pilate's really, really great question. What will I do with Jesus? Is essentially the question. And this being this all-important question, after Mark and all the other gospel writers have recorded for us who Jesus is, Son of God, and what Jesus did, save sinners, that's a question that each one of us needs to respond to. Jesus asked when he was in Caesarea Philippi, Mark records the story in Mark chapter 8, and he asks, who do people, who do people say that I am? But then he switches this question to ask it directly, to ask it personally, and he directs it towards his disciples, and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, when people ask a general question that's not directed towards us personally, it's, it's, a, it's an easier thing to answer. So who do people say Jesus is? And it's easy. People say Jesus is a prophet. People say he's a teacher. People say he's a cool guy that dresses like a hippie, like whatever it is. Um, but then turn the question personally to you, and it gets a little bit more uncomfortable. Who do you say Jesus is? And so... He aims it directly at his disciples, and just like each one of us, it's, there's a direct question to us as well. Who do you say Jesus is? And it's fascinating that Peter steps up to the plate and he answers, you are the Christ. And then right after this, Jesus tells them to tell no one about this. Mark 8, verse 30. Why? That, that's odd, isn't it? Like, you came to let people know you're Messiah, but now you're saying, like, okay, you got the answer right, but don't tell anybody. It's kind of strange. And the reason being that he doesn't really want them to tell anyone yet is people won't get it. They won't understand it yet. Just like these disciples don't quite understand it. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And so we, we think about this and, he, and to think Messiah is going to suffer, be rejected, and die? Uh, that makes no sense at all. Which is why Peter kind of pulls Jesus aside and says, like, no way, this can't be. And he rebukes Jesus and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. His own disciples don't understand this. So how is the public going to understand this? Because the mindset is, we are an oppressed people who have been mistreated and abused by this Roman Empire. We have a history of abuse and oppression that dates back to Egypt, back in Exodus, when we were a slave people, and we've been a slave people for a long time. We've been led out to Babylon in the Babylonian captivity. We've been overtaken by so many other people groups. We 
we deserve our land back. We've been promised by God all these promises since Abraham. And if Christ is not delivering us from this injustice, from this abuse, from this oppression, there is no way he can be Messiah. Messiah has to overcome all this stuff. He has to reverse the injustice so that justice is served. He has to give us our kingdom back because we want security. We want provision. We want freedom from all the hardships we've experienced for generations. This thinking is still happening today with us. We think the same way. And so when people who think that, you know what, God doesn't fit my picture of how things should be because our world is not just. There's so much injustice and there's so much oppression and there are too many people who are being marginalized and cheated and abused. And you know what, if God doesn't do what I want in the way that I think, there is no God. I'm going to reject it. It doesn't, doesn't fit. And so we've struggled with the same exact thing since the beginning of humankind. It's the same thing. That we thought, Adam and Eve, since Genesis, that we're God. And that fruit, I can't eat it. Because I want that knowledge. I want the same knowledge as God. And we know better than he does. Or we can know better than he does. And so when Jesus showed up as Messiah, there were many people who were disappointed with this guy. He's Messiah? We don't really even know who his dad is. He's from Galilee. He's not even educated or trained in Jerusalem. He's a carpenter's son? He's a carpenter? Things aren't fitting here. There's no military? How is he going to overtake Rome? He's not wealthy? He's not the picture of the king that they envisioned. And so, like many people today, there's a disappointment of God. That God is not showing up the, the way that they want God to show up. But the thing is, is that people are so focused on our world. When Jesus did something so much more, that spans space, that spans time, that he was freeing us from for all eternity, not just for a temporal space and time. He said in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So what Jesus revealed privately to his disciples wasn't made public until later because if Again, if Jesus' own disciples had such a hard time receiving this news about Messiah, how in the world is everyone else going to receive this news? They, they can't. And there are a lot of things that don't look like the Savior that we want, the God that we want. And if God is real, why is there so much suffering in the world? If God is real... Why is there so much oppression? Why is there so much injustice? Why is there so much darkness in our world? It's the same reasoning that people used 2,000 years ago when Messiah shows up. And so with Pilate's great question, let's look at another great question that one of uh, the opposition had, this time the high priest. Let's look at Mark chapter 14. It starts in verse 60. 
And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Here's the awesome question. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. But what is your decision? It's a great question. What's your decision? Because again, a decision has to be made of acceptance or rejection and not making a decision is in fact a decision. Abstaining from a decision or staying neutral is a decision. So what is your decision? Let's get into our text for this morning, Mark 15, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail the king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. See, they didn't just lead Jesus to his death. They made sure it was humiliating and they were really cruel about it, mocking him about this stuff. That's not the thing I want to focus on at all because that's not the thing that I find all that profound, that people can be that cruel, like we see this all the time. The amazing thing to me is the restraint and the self-control of God. That is amazing. There have been many, many people, thousands, I don't, I'm guessing, that have been crucified, that have endured suffering, hardship, ridicule, mockery, humiliation. There have been thousands, tens of thousands, that the Romans did this to. But none of them had the authority or the power to do anything about it. But here we have God, who could and chooses not to. Listen to what Jesus said here. In Matthew 26, 53, he said this. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. You have that number, 12 legions? Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. Because on that night, it is recorded that one angel killed 185,000 soldiers. People who are trained to fight and who can fight and who are armed let alone just people who are mocking, spitting, saying things at the crowd, wagging their heads, and wagging their fingers. So when we're looking at Jesus saying, I can call 12 legions of angels, he's saying, every face on the planet Earth, I can wipe out right now. But he doesn't. This is an incredible thing to me. That Jesus is not a defenseless victim. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's allowing to happen to him. So when people question, why would Jesus allow that? Why would Jesus allow the torture, the suffering, the mockery? 
And it comes down to this. He loves you. To be able to take that. And he, why did he come? What did he do? He came to save you. And if he does not endure this, this propitiation, this substitutionary atonement for you, all that darkness within us, all that sin within us, and taking that upon himself, then you and I have no hope of deliverance, of redemption, of reconciliation with God to whom we have been separated from, from our sin. Verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Um, Rufus, I, I, I just had to, I love that name. Um, Bill and Ted, I just, Ruf, anyway. This, this detail is really interesting because there's no like explanation of these names at all, right? They're just put out there. Mark just puts them out there. And this detail of Simon and his sons, Alexander and Rufus, it's presumed that these guys are, became followers of Jesus and that Mark just recorded them in the gospel because it was assumed that everyone who read this knew them. That, oh yeah, that's Simon, he carried the cross. Oh yeah, and those are his boys. And everyone kind of knew this. And we've lost that sort of common knowledge that was just passed down from the story 2,000 years ago that people would automatically know. Oh yeah, that's Rufus. He traveled in a telephone booth and he picked up Bill and Ted and, and stuff. And so they, things that people would just know back then, it, it's just not explained, but that's kind of just known then. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now, we all know that crucifixion was a very, very cruel form of execution. It was so cruel that Romans forbade it to be done to Roman citizens, that you could not crucify a Roman citizen. And so... They, they knew that this was a very excruciating way to die. It was a slow death. And, and we can go into a lot of detail about it because there's actually a lot of information about the physiology behind it. And, and knowing what we know about the human anatomy now, we can go into all these sorts of things. Um, uh, there's a time and place for that. I don't think it's now. Um, because I, th I think about Luke, who was a physician, and he himself doesn't even write about that. So why would we do that? Why would we be preoccupied with the physical suffering because the focus really isn't on what was being done to Jesus as much as it was what Jesus was doing? It wasn't focused on the suffering and what it was like, but why Jesus suffered, why he died. And the focus isn't on the torture and those sorts of things it's on what it achieved why he suffered so take a look at first peter chapter 2 verse 24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed that jesus died in our place he took our place he suffered and he died for us so for anyone to think that Jesus doesn't empathize or understand our pain is inaccurate. And we'll read that the mockery and the suffering continued until Jesus died. 
Let's read verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. Now, verse 28 in our Bible translation, it kind of leaves that blank, and it's because um, those weren't in the oldest manuscripts that we had, so the ESV writers left that out. Now, if you have any questions about that or you want to talk about that, um, Pastor Steve is available for you to talk to him about those things. Verse 29, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Again, the restraint of God, the self-control of God. It's a mind-boggling thing. But the mission of Jesus was to save, and that's exactly what was happening there. We can't look at this as Jesus as a model of suffering. You know, sometimes people are thinking, like, oh, look at him. He was just there. He endured it. Like, we, we need to do the same. We need to do that. The point isn't Jesus being some sort of an example of someone who suffers. It's that he suffered to save us. He died in our place. He's our Savior. And through this torturous, slow death that he suffered, he exercised this really, really great control. You look at the detail written in verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This mixture was an anesthetic. It would numb the pain. It would kind of get somebody, their mind out of it. And if Jesus did take it, think about some of the things that wouldn't have happened. So for example, in Luke's account, there were two thieves. One thief they were railing at Jesus initially, and then one of the thieves continues at it, but the other one's saying, like, hey, man, we're guilty. That guy's innocent. And he asked Jesus, hey, can I be with you? And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, what would have happened if Jesus was totally out of it and he couldn't have this conversation with this guy and didn't have the mental faculties to even discuss these things. And this is, this is the incredible thing. This is a really, really incredible thing. That if that thief was any one of you, he would have done the same thing and not taken the anesthesia and said, I will endure all the pain. I will endure all the ridicule and the humiliation that I'm hearing from people who are wagging their heads and their fingers at me for that one guy. I'll do it. I don't want any of this stuff to prevent that opportunity. And it's the same thing for each one of us. That if it were you or me that was on that cross, that he is taking that guy's place, literally. That he's doing the same exact thing for us. Or, in John's gospel, he sees his mom, and then there's John, who doesn't really name himself. He just says the disciple that Jesus loved but we all know it's you, John, so stop being all the fake humble and stuff, right? So it's John. And so, he, and so he, he goes and he's saying, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. He, if, if he took the myrrh, if he took the anesthesia, would he have been alert enough and conscious enough to say, Mom, I love you. I know you're a widow. It was my job to take care of you as your oldest son. I actually don't even trust my brothers to take care of you. But John, 
He's my boy. And he's going to take care of you. And you guys are going to live in Ephesus, and you're going to have a house there, and tourists can go there today and pay a lot of money and go and visit it. That to think that. And here's the awesome thing. This guy is a non-believer. And Jesus was enduring the cross for, for him. Mary, his mom, was a believer. He did the same thing for her, and he cares for her. That even though he's dying, he's not just like, I got bigger problems, lady. You got you to gotta take care of your own. He's not like that at all. This is a loving God that for the non-believer... I'm going to take your place. I'm going to endure all this stuff for you. No questions asked. I don't have any conditions. You don't, have to, you don't have to change your behavior. You don't have to change your morals. You don't have to do anything. He just says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And then for the believer, I'm not going to leave you out there to suffer on your own. I'm going to surround you with people who love you, a community. I'm going to pray for you. You're going to take care of you. We're going to, we're going to do life together. And we're going to be able to do this together. That's the love of God. That's the love of Jesus. And that he was in control the whole time. He's not a victim just hanging up there. He's not surprised by any of these events. Take a look at Psalm 22. A messianic psalm. Um, We're just going to go over a few verses of this. Because this is going to help kind of hyperlink some things that are in Mark's gospel to what was already prophesied about generations before. Starting in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ring a huge bell, right? That's one. Verses 7 and 8, All who see me mock me. They make, my, make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. The dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. God's not surprised. God's in control the whole time. And Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is king of Israel. And here they are humiliating Jesus, making a mockery out of the whole thing, and have no idea that they're just playing into what was prophesied about generations ago. It's just coming, all coming true. Verse 32, Mark 15. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We have this saying um, in our culture that seeing is believing. You know, seeing is believing. That we want to see something before we believe it. And here they tell Jesus essentially the same thing. Jesus, you come down, and if we see that, we believe. And it's so ironic because if Jesus comes down, we're all condemned. That is not the plan. That if he saved himself, we're all dead. We're all condemned. And that by saying, seeing is believing, 
It's just the opposite with the Christian faith. If you believe, then you'll see. That's our faith. That's Christianity. It's not see and then believe. It's believe, then you'll see. Turn with me to Matthew 28. This is after the resurrection. Um, the angel spoke to the woman at the tomb and, and told them um, to tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus rose from the dead. And then we pick up the story here in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. You're keeping in mind who these soldiers are, right? They noticed these things. They saw all of this stuff. They saw the disciples go away, and when they saw that happen, then they went to talk to the elders and the chief priests here, picking up in verse 13, and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Because why? Because they would be put to death for not doing their job. And so, of course, they're afraid. But the Jews are saying, like, don't worry about it. We're going to pay him off too. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So do you understand that seeing is not believing? Because those soldiers were right there. And they saw it. And yet they're still colluding to tell a lie. They had all the evidence before them to believe. They saw it. See, what we have is not an evidence-based problem. They didn't have eye problems. They saw it. They don't have intellectual problems. They can reason. They can use their logic to come up with truth. The problem is a heart problem. The problem is a spiritual problem. The reasons people don't believe in Jesus isn't because they haven't seen him. The reason people don't see Jesus is because they don't believe him. you got to believe it. Then you'll see it. Just try it. Try it. Your life will change. If you just believe it in faith, then you'll see it. But if you wait around wanting to see something... That's not going to bring you to belief. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Not wait for signs. Not waiting for proofs. Not trying to... Believe in it. Then you'll see it. My hope is that you believe right now. Today. This morning. That Jesus took your sin upon himself to reconcile, reconcile you to God, to restore your relationship to God, which sin has separated. That's what sin does. And if you accept this gift, it's an acceptance. It's not rejecting it. But if you don't accept it, it is a rejection. There's no, like, neutral thing. You're understanding that? Like, if you don't accept it, it's a rejection. So believing Jesus to be the Savior he claimed to be, hanging on that cross, knowing that if you are not a believer this morning, 
You're that guy right next to him hanging on the cross, and he's doing it for you. He died for you. And if you are a believer out there, be encouraged. You're not alone. He's coming back. He's for you. Trust him to be Savior. Believe him to be Savior. Have faith in him this morning. And, and this is your moment. This is your moment. Let me end with reading from the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 3. Starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send into the world his Son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's this really all-important question that all of us need to ponder, whether you're a thief on the cross or you are the mother of Jesus. And it's this question, who do you believe Jesus is? And I think we have that question. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And so we're going to take a few minutes as we've invited Crystal to sing this song for us. Um, Crystal is a beautiful singer, and um, she, she does this for a living, and so she just has a, a really, really awesome presence. And so we've hidden her um, so that you can actually focus on the words of the song and not just stare at her because she's captivating as a as a singer so we want you to focus on this question as well as focusing on the words that she's going to sing and just kind of meditate on that and to think about that and pray about that um, for these next several minutes Amen. 
Yeah. 